Hello, everyone. This is Brad Thomas, and welcome back to the IREAT podcast. Uh, we've renamed the podcast IREAT because that's short for the Intelligent REIT Investor Guide, which is also the name of my new book. So uh, we're happy to have today Sam Shandon with us. Sam, of course, is a very good friend. I've known Sam for a number of years, but he runs the real estate school called the Shack Real Estate School at NYU. Uh, one of the largest, if not the largest real estate schools, I think, in the world. And uh, at least uh, Sam will tell us a little bit about that. And I'm I, before we get started, I want to say I'm really honored to now uh, be teaching here uh, in a couple of weeks at NYU. And uh, Sam, so it's great to be with you today and uh, talk about our favorite topics, uh, commercial real estate. Likewise, I'm thrilled to be here. Congratulations on on the new book, uh, and uh, we're, yeah, we're we're just delighted to have you as part of uh, our, our family at the Shack Institute. Uh, we were founded as the Real Estate Institute in uh, 1967, uh, and uh, as you described, are you know one of the longest standing, uh, but uh, we also believe the largest uh, real estate uh, academic real estate uh, program in the world. So. Uh, um, just to have you uh, as part of our adventure uh, on, as you said, our favorite topic is uh, there's nothing like it. Great. Well, Sam, this morning I, I went to your LinkedIn bio and I was telling my, my army of, of, of subscribers that we were going to be talking today. And I, I looked at your bio. And I was like, my gosh, look at all these degrees. I, I, the screen wasn't big enough to, to do a screenshot um, <laughs> of all those degrees. And, and I'll say this, I mean, you know, Sam, look, I, I wanted to go to Wharton and I, you know, I wanted to get a, you know, I wanted to have all these advanced degrees in real estate. And, and this is a dream come true for me to even be a part of this, this very prestigious university in New York and, uh, you know, which is ground central for, for commercial real estate. So really, uh, I'm, I'm honored to be, uh, be part of this. And uh, thank you for your time today. And, uh, you know, I'd love to tap into a lot of your knowledge. And we'll try to keep this as short as possible, because I know we could keep going on and on. But uh, Sam, you're you're in New York and uh, physically, and uh, you know I've been up there just for a short period a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know I, I felt a lot, I felt pretty good about it, just walking around the city. Um, one one thing missing is international travel. When you go mm -hmm. to Times Square, you can clearly see it's not as robust as it was prior to COVID. But but certainly the recovery is well underway. Um, you know offices are opening back up, and now schools opening back up. So tell us a little bit, I guess about the, the program there. I guess you're getting ready to, uh, kids are back on campus. So what, what's happening there at, at uh, NYU right now? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, when, the, when the pandemic started, like everyone else, we pivoted very, very quickly to online. Uh, we had uh, an advantage at Shack in that uh, we do, we had already been delivering for many years, some of our non-degree continuing corporate executive education programs through online formats to reach audiences around the world. And so uh, for many of us, teaching online was not an entirely new uh, experience. Uh, that being said, we had not done it on the scale of the entire institute uh, up until this point, and certainly not on the scale of an entire university. So um, you know, that was March of 2020. Uh, we had a larger number of students and a large number of hybrid classes that were a combination of online and in-person during the spring semester of uh, 2021. But uh, we are absolutely excited to be bringing everyone back to campus this fall. We have a small number of folks who've not been able to make it, 
um, sometimes related to you know uh, delays in getting visas, and, and we're making accommodations for those students. But uh, overwhelmingly, students, faculty, staff uh, are back on campus right here in the middle of New York City. Uh, you can feel the excitement. Um, it's just a really dynamic, exciting time, uh, not only on campus, but as you described, when you're walking around the city. Uh, you know, the, the sidewalks are busy, the parks are busy, people are out, they're in the restaurants. Um, you know, we have had some concerns over the last, I'd say, month or so, uh, as uh, the Delta variant has become uh, a, a more significant um, you know, cause of concern uh, for uh, you know, health professionals, policymakers, businesses. You know, would that delay the return to the office? And we have seen that you know, roughly half of uh, the uh, office using um, employers in, in the city have made some adjustment to their back to office plan. In some cases, this is uh, you know maybe coming back in October, uh, coming back in November. Some have pushed it out to you know, January, early 2022. Whereas you know two months ago, there were a very you know, overwhelmingly folks that sort of targeted you know right after Labor Day. You know we're moving to our new rotation. Um, so the return to office will be a little bit delayed. You know, when you look at sort of, you know, the, the occupancy of restaurants as one proxy for, for what's happening, um, the, uh, you know, at lunchtime, they're not quite as busy um, as they are at night. And it's because a lot of folks, they're back in the city, they want to go out, you know, they're meeting friends for dinner. The business lunch crowd uh, is, uh, has returned, but not quite uh, in a significant way. And so uh, the upside of that is you can still get a table at lunch at your favorite restaurant. Um, but uh, you know, it'll, it'll take a little bit of time. It'll take a little bit of time. Um, I would say that uh, part of what we've also seen is that um, in many cases, it's the largest companies uh, that have uh, uh, that, you know, that have delayed the return to office in in the most significant way. Um, smaller companies that have been able to adjust uh, more quickly uh, have been a little bit more flexible in their response. Um, you know, have uh, have been you know might have delayed a week, a couple of weeks, a month. Uh, but when you're talking about you know sort of you know, uh, something on the scale of not that there is anything else on the scale of Apple, uh, but when you're talking about sort of you know, the very very large organizations, those tend to be the ones that have. Um, chosen to delay a, a little bit longer in their return to work. Last point I'll make on this, Brad, the, um, we, we don't see very many companies in their you know, post-pandemic, uh, if we can call it that, rotation, really bringing people back to work five days a week. Um, there's an absolute and deep understanding of the value of physical co-location, uh, of having people in the office, particularly young people. You know, their ability to build networks, create relationships, find mentors, it does not happen. Um, in the same way uh, on Zoom. And so there's a deep appreciation for the importance of having people physically co-located for idea generation, for you know, to maintain and build and enhance the culture uh, of the firm and the organization, um, but not necessarily five days a week. We can accomplish that in three. Um, and so what we do see is that while there's a lot of talk and a lot of articles about you know, folks decamping from New York and, and moving to the Sun Belt, you know, the, the data that we're looking at uh, tells a slightly different story. There's certainly folks that are moving to other parts of the country, um, and there's a change in the competitive dynamics of, of different cities. But I think what uh, is more common um, is that folks are expanding the geographic radius uh, around which they are optimizing their location preference. So they lived in the city because they're going to work five days a week and it would otherwise be a painfully long commute. They're only going in three days a week now. And you know what? They care about a good quality public school as well because they've got young kids. And so, you know, three days a week, they can make that longer commute. 
Um, they're looking just in a slightly wider area, uh, but they're still ultimately anchored uh, to their place of work. Um, and so, you know, are, are not venturing across the country uh, in, in, in large numbers. Yeah. Well, Sam, you know, we, uh, of course, cover the office sector. And, you know, I was just looking at some of our data and the office REITs. Office REITs have returned about 19.4% year to date, so just about 20% collectively. Now, there's some outliers in there, of course. Uh, city office, which is a suburban, an uh, 18-hour uh, uh, platform is what they call themselves. They just announced yesterday, I think, uh, they, yesterday, uh, a big portfolio sell in San Diego at a ridiculously low cap rate, uh, which, again, suggests that, you know, there is some that, that light to quality in, in, in the South. But when we look at these these uh, these New York-centric REITs, I'm speaking of SL Green, Boston Properties, Vernado, to name three, um, you know, what are you seeing out there in terms of, I know one Vanderbilt just opened. I haven't been able to tour that yet. I'm looking forward to getting back up there and, and taking a look. I've heard some very impressive numbers about lease up, but what are you seeing out there for concessions? I guess that's the topic out there is uh, how many, what, you know, are there, are there just an, uh, an outrageous number of concessions that are being offered or what are you seeing out there? So I don't see an outrageous number of concessions. Um, and I will qualify this by saying I'm not sort of a leasing broker. Um, but you know, when I'm looking at the data, uh, what I do see is selection bias. Um, and so you know, I just walked by one Vanderbilt at lunch today. What an impressive property. Um, and I think sort of you know, the pe people who know call it one Vandy. Um, and so, of course, you know, it's still one Vanderbilt for me. The, um, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's an exceptional property. When we're looking at you know, some of these, you know, this new generation of iconic trophy properties um, in, a, in a market where uh, on average prior to, you know, the, the most recent cycle, you know, the, you know, our, we absolutely uh, were characterized by an aging inventory of office buildings. Um, you know, these new assets uh, have really changed the landscape, um, have helped to redefine um, neighborhoods. And certainly that's the case with Hudson Yards, uh, where, you know, we, we've, literally changed uh, you know, part of uh, the skyline of New York City. Um, certainly that's the case you know, downtown uh, at uh, the World Trade Center development. Um, the, uh, but I think you know, these, these very, very high quality properties um, are generally performing quite well uh, from an investment perspective, from a leasing perspective. Um, if you don't have an anchor tenant yet, um, still maybe a bit of a struggle to get an anchor tenant. Those are very, that's very, very idiosyncratic. Uh, you know, element of the leasing market, um, where I think we see fewer trades and so less visibility, fewer leases being signed, and so also less visibility or insight into how deep are those concessions are the older office buildings, the pre-war buildings that, um, you know, in terms of their ceiling heights, uh, their HVAC systems, the elevator banks, um, you know, look, you know, maybe look functionally obsolete before the pandemic. And when we think about sort of the the, you know, the the greater emphasis post pandemic on um, you know things like you know circulation of the air, uh, being able to you know uh, open windows, um, the having having larger spaces to accommodate for uh, you know not necessarily a six foot distance, but uh, you know perhaps just a little bit more distance than we had before. I don't necessarily want to be in a big crowd on an elevator. Um, the uh, you know some of those older buildings I think are the ones that. Um, you know, we're not seeing as well represented in the data uh, because uh, they're not as, they're not proving to be as attractive. Um, some of those, I think, will be repositioned ultimately uh, in the multifamily sector uh, as their highest and best use adjusts. Well, switching over to uh, I guess the the apartment or residential sector, 
um, looking again at our data from um, apartments up 40% year to date. So double the performance of, of the uh, office sector. So now you know, it looks like the office, uh, excuse me, the multifamily sector is well underway with its recovery really from coast to coast. Uh, we really saw it, you know, across from uh, from the West Coast, Essex Property Trust, for example, which is our sharpshooter out west, all the way over to East Coast, Avalon Bay, Equity Residential, and some of those names. So what are you seeing out there in terms of the uh, multifamily trends, especially in New York City? Sure. So I, I'd say that, you know, there, there was uh, some of these comparisons in terms of returns would look a little bit different um, if we were, let's say, comparing the month prior to the beginning of the pandemic to today. And so, you know, our numbers this year look really good in part because they reflect the recovery um, and that some of the worst case scenarios that people had imagined for delinquencies, defaults, uh, you know, an implosion of the property market, people abandoning cities, which was a nonsensical um, sort of you know, notion from the beginning. The um, you know, we we have uh, you know, we have we have a, a very healthy rebound in these markets, and uh, in the case of the multifamily sector, I think we actually have a, a very good case example of you know a segment of the market where uh, there was a, a great deal of concern about the potential for a mass exodus from the core urban areas. We have again seen some of that adjustment, and some of that adjustment reflects, you know, an acceleration of the underlying demographics. You know, millennials growing older, having kids, um, and you're looking for a little bit more space, uh, and now having this sort of additional flexibility uh, in terms of the frequency of their commute. The, uh, but I think what we see is that as conditions have stabilized, as we've been able to avoid. You know, some of those worst case scenarios uh, that uh, you know, sort of, you know, the doomsayers may have envisioned for you know, the uh, the abandonment of of the downtown cores uh, that has helped to support demand. When we look at a market like New York, we absolutely have uh, renewed upward pressure on you know rents um, in the in the in the multifamily market, on condo and co op prices in the for sale market. Uh, that's very very real. Um, Two elements of this that I'd add. One is, you know, and this sort of reflects a little bit on what you, uh, what we were discussing with the office sector. You know, there's a broad range of quality and price point and geographic location within the metropolitan area within the city when we're talking about multifamily. Um, in as much as we can fairly say that, you know, the you know the real estate investment trust, the publicly traded REITs own um, or are overweighted to you know the, the very highest quality assets. Um, yeah, there's there's strong outperformance there. Um, yeah, there we'll we'll see that trends are a little bit more mixed when we're looking at um, you know relatively uh, you know when we're looking at Class B properties when we're looking at properties that are further out in the boroughs. Uh, that being said, you know I watch and track with uh, my colleagues at Arbor um, the small balance market or the small asset multifamily market uh, very closely as well, and we see continued strength there. Um, demand in the workforce segment, demand in the naturally occurring affordable housing uh, space. This is not sort of capital A affordable, but things that are affordable to you know, that median income earner. Imagine that sort of as a, as a loose definition of, of uh, naturally occurring affordable. Really across the board, uh, your demand is uh, fairly robust. There are obviously pockets of weakness, uh, you know, some markets where we have a surplus of small studios uh, that are uh, studio, studio apartments in high amenity, you know, small unit buildings uh, that are just a little bit out of step uh, with the you know demographic and demand profile in that market uh, for the time being. Um, 
But you can also see, for example, in a complementary data set from the National Multifamily Housing Council, NMHC, uh, they've done yeoman's work in collecting for all of us uh, during the pandemic uh, data on uh, rent payment rates. Uh, the um, I think as we move down the observable threshold to relatively smaller properties um, and away from sort of the institutional assets, that's where we see sort of the locus of stress. Um, the uh, So overall, you know, strong performance in, in the multifamily market, fa fairly even, not entirely even, but fairly even performance in, in multifamily. Uh, you know, there are certainly folks that have struggled to pay their rent uh, that are going to struggle with the expiration of eviction moratoria. Uh, we also have, and I've got to emphasize this point because it doesn't get enough attention, we have small landlords across the country that have really struggled with the, the eviction moratoria as well. A lot of the uh, relief has focused on uh, the needs of renters, and I understand why why that is the case and why that's been important. Um, the uh, but sometimes it's been to the exclusion of well, what are the strains and stresses on that small landlord that might own one or two buildings with five units, six units, where they're dependent upon that cash flow from rent to uh, meet their you know meet their own family's needs, uh, you know, to whether it be you know food, clothing, mortgages, uh, apart from uh, you know, apart from uh, you know, paying the mortgage on the property, paying the property insurance, paying the property taxes, things that are important for you know the city's fiscal health. Um, I think that you know many small landlords have struggled uh, with uh, you know with an environment in which um, you know they've not been able to necessarily uh, maintain stable cash flows through no fault of their own. Um, and uh, but even there, e even there, we see an amelioration in outcomes. Uh, which in part reflects uh, the you know, the uh, real strength of the uh, of the labor market. Had certainly it was certainly worried about that with some of the data that we were seeing earlier this year. And I don't think we're going to get labor market data you know in August that is as strong as it was you know in June, um, in the in the in the July report um, and in the report at the beginning of August for July. Uh, but uh, overall, you know, uh, a fairly robust labor market where the story is more most likely to be. Uh, one characterized by the fact that we have more jobs open and available in the United States today than we've ever had before. Um, the principal challenge um, is that uh, we don't have folks that match up uh, in terms of uh, their underlying skill sets for those job opportunities. Yeah, well, that's great. And and also want to uh, the last segment I wanted to touch on, which you you already touched on it briefly, is the really the commercial lending market, commercial mortgage. You mentioned Arbor. I've I've got an interview. I think Eon next week. Uh, we. Company's done great. Arbor's a great company, and I do own shares in Arbor uh, for disclosure. But uh, we cover all the commercial mortgage REITs. So out of the Great Recession, Sam, you know this, a lot of these private equity firms uh, decided to utilize the REIT vehicle. So Starwood, TPG, KKR, Blackstone, just you name them. All these private equity funds decided to get into the REIT game. And that's been great for the REIT market. It's, it's given the individual uh, investor access to commercially held mortgages uh, mm -hmm. across the U.S., uh, and now we have all these sectors. We even have a cannabis REIT now. We have a, a lending, a single family lending REIT called Broadmark. And of course, Arbor, you mentioned, specialized in multifamily. So all of these different uh, areas that investors can, can fish in. But uh, look, look, we're still in this really, really low rate environment. And I just, I want you to put your, your economist hat on, uh, Sam. What do, you, what, do you think, what do you think the next 12 months is going to look like? I mean, if you could just kind of give us your crystal ball, kind of what do you see out there in the next 12 months? 
Sure, I'm always wearing my economist hat, <laughs> except when I'm wearing my epidemiologist hat. But you know, I think um, you know where folks are asking about sort of what are you, what are you then concerned about? I mean, the, the biggest overarching thing uh, that I'm concerned about is my epidemiology hat um, and concerns about the potential for uh, the emergence of variants that are significantly more problematic uh, than what we've seen thus far. Um, it's difficult to estimate the mutation rate uh, when it is, uh, you know, by definition, a random event. Uh, but we do know that there's, you know, there are you know, significant concentrations of people all around the world uh, where uh, where the vaccination rate for the population is low. I don't want to get into a debate about vaccinations, but uh, the underlying conditions that will allow for the emergence of new mutations are there. Um, and I should say, you know, the emergence of new variants. Uh, many of those uh, will uh, be characterized by a lower level of fitness uh, than the Delta variant, and so won't crowd uh, you know, Delta out, but there's the possibility of the emergence of something that's far more problematic. And so that is the, the broader public health context uh, that I'm worried about. Um, in terms of uh, the United States and let's say monetary and fiscal policy and how that could affect something like um, the uh, you know like the like the borrowing market. I think my, my principal concern right now we have fairly robust growth numbers. Um, we also have significant tightness in the labor market that is fomenting uh, upward pressure on uh, on on both wages and prices generally. Uh, there is continued debate about whether that price pressure is transitory or, or whether it will persist in a way that will require uh, the Federal Reserve and Federal Open Market Committee to uh, make adjustments to monetary policy, essentially to tighten up and push rates up. Um, that is a very real risk. I'm telling you, for in terms of uh, the interaction of fiscal and monetary policy, uh, my concern is that um, some of the steps we're taking in terms of fiscal policy are uh, making this scenario more likely. Uh, given where we are with the labor market, given where we are uh, with growth, is it appropriate for fiscal policy in the United States to be as aggressive as some of the proposals that we see? Um, and uh, I'll give you the example of uh, infrastructure. It's a tough question. I'm going to be the first to say we have a real need for meaningful infrastructure investment in this country. Um, uh, we are suffering the consequences of decades of uh, infrastructure neglect, no matter how broadly we define that infrastructure. But given the constraints on the supply and availability of construction labor, construction materials, if we pump a trillion dollars over the next several years into the infrastructure market, and think about sort of, you know, the real sort of solid, tangible bricks mortar infrastructure, um, you've got a trillion dollars competing for those same materials, those same labor resources as the private sector. Um, if that infrastructure package does not also focus some of its energies on expanding and enhancing the supply of skilled labor, the United States access to materials, our steel production capacity domestically, then where we end up with is a potentially a situation where you know, significant government spending in the area of infrastructure ends up crowding out private investment um, in real estate and the built environment. Um, and in areas that are going to be important for everyone, including things like affordable housing. Um, and so I do worry that our fiscal policy interventions uh, coming out of the pandemic are sufficiently broad uh, that uh, they are going to foment some of these pressures. That is not to say that there aren't people who are truly suffering, that need support, uh, that have been displaced by the pandemic. Um, what I'd like to see is interventions that are 
targeted to support the people who have been impacted by the pandemic. Um, some of what we're seeing is so broad uh, that uh, it will foment those pressures and constraints in the economy uh, in a way that could effectively raise the cost of capital uh, and require that, uh, that monetary policy adjusts in a way that will be unfavorable to real estate. Well, that's a that's a lot of uh, a lot to chew on, and I, I agree with you. I think the infrastructure is uh, really critical right now. I mean, we definitely need it. Uh, ironically, you know, REITs were formed in 1960 in the Eisenhower administration, right when the uh, same time that the uh, highways were being paved across the country. And uh, there's a lot of uh, interstates that I travel on that probably haven't been paved in, in quite some time. It can feel like that some days. Yeah, exactly. But. Uh, well, Sam, listen, I, I want to thank you again for, for your time. And uh, again, I'm looking forward to, uh, to uh, teaching at, at, uh, at your school yeah. uh, and uh, being a, a small part of that. And uh, hopefully I'll get to see you again in New York pretty soon. I'm going to try Absolutely. to get back up. We are, uh, we are excited to roll out the red carpet at the Institute when you arrive uh, in person. Uh, so uh, welcome uh, once again to, to Shaq. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Great. Thanks again, Sam. Bye -bye. Take care.